Welcome to the New Books Network. So what we need to do is look at him as we're falling, that we're actually not falling towards our destruction, but we're falling towards him who's going to catch us. We're falling towards a loving God and we're going to be united to him. And so here, I think what really needs to be roused up in our own hearts and our minds is that we're moving towards goodness. We're moving towards the goodness of his truth, which means that we have to let go. The Greek word for sin is amartia, and it means to miss the target or to miss the bullseye. And if you've ever tried archery, you know that target practice improves marksmanship. And if you are alive, you've been struggling with sin your whole life. Last year, Father Chris Pietraszko, a diocesan pastor of four parishes in Ontario, started writing articles about the seven deadly sins, and I wanted to talk to him about this topic. Because mortal sin sounds terrible, and target practice doesn't sound bad at all, and I think we need to sort these out, since we are almost good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Adinitz, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions. And they get to share their conclusions with me, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every single email. Today, Father Chris Pietraszko. He's a Roman Catholic priest of the Diocese of London, Ontario, in Canada. He grew up in London and is a pastor of a family of parishes. That's four parishes with one leader. He studied at St. Peter's Seminary in London, and he also studied at Holy Apostles College in Connecticut, specializing in systematic philosophy. Father Chris is a very prolific writer. If you Google his name, you will see lots and lots of articles in many platforms. I know him best from the Missio Dei platform, where he writes on a variety of topics. But starting last year, he wrote a series of articles about the seven deadly sins. And I suspect this is going to be a book. Um, that's that's how it looks to me. Welcome, Father. Thank you very much, Chris. Good to uh, finally get together. Yeah. Am I correct that this is going to be a book project? Yeah, I'm currently working on, I think I've got four chapters written, and I'm working on uh, the current chapters on the deadly sin of envy. So right. kind of happy to get my thoughts out all on it. <laughs> Terrific. Would you like to start us off with with a joke? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, have you heard the joke about the chiropractor? I, no, I have not. I told it about a week back. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so, um, a sin, uh, amartia, to miss the target. Mm-hmm. What is it? What is a sin? Uh, Paul writes to the Romans, look, I'm always trying to do, I'm always doing what I hate. I wish I could do the things I wanted to do, but I keep messing up. What is, you know, what is this human condition of ours that we are uh, so weak and yet so well-intentioned? And how do we reconcile that? And uh, where should we start? You start, you know, we could start with the um, uh, elephant in the room as you write. Is is there good or evil in the first place? Because some people might say there is no good or evil. We don't think that's true. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I I started off this uh, book that I was writing um, when it comes to sin, was also making the distinction between mistakes or mm-hmm. error and and sin. And I um, think it's important for us to realize, you know, we're going to make mistakes about good and evil. We're not always going to completely understand the difference. 
Um, but sin is where we willingly allow ourselves to be manipulated and duped. And, and there's a lot of different dimensions of where sin exists, uh, but it always begins in our mind, um, in our intellect, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. And that's a very important thing for us to consider. Sometimes I, I think we've externalized our notion of sin so much in matter that we only recognize it by what our culture or what our Catholic culture say that it looks like, but we rarely see the mechanisms psychologically that, that have to take place in order for us to actually enter into it spiritually. So sin to miss the target really means to, to miss what is ultimately good, what, what we're meant to aim for, you know, and um, there's a, almost an infant variety of things that are good that we're meant to aim for depending on the circumstances we're in. Um, but it's, it's often according to our, our good nature that we're operating. And that's kind of a unique thing that if you read um, Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean ethics. He really does talk about <clears throat> ethics in the context of pursuit of happiness. And so that we're, we're seeking to be fulfilled, full of life, to cooperate with who and what we are in our design. And um, as human beings, we're not only emotional creatures or animal creatures uh, with a physiology and a design, but we're also spiritual or angel-like creatures because we have uh, free will, we have the ability to think freely and so on. And so I think really sin comes down to when it when it terminates in the intellect it comes down to rationalization it comes down to not um, surrendering to what reality is what the truth is whether it be about ourselves or about others or the world that we live in and, and god finally um, and so that that's where it all kind of begins with pride defining the truth bending it to our will and uh and it becomes mortal it becomes uh, mortal sin where it's so significant that the the act is gravely wrong it, it, it's destroying the life within us that is what we were designed to to do or ultimately break our relationship with god um which it, who is the truth uh, in such a profound way aquinas would say that um venial sin is a sin against the path towards heaven but Mortal sin is basically to step off the path completely. And so I, I, I do find that kind of a helpful analogy. Um, now, there's three conditions, as you know, the, the Catholic Church teaches on mortal sin. We have to fully consent. We have to know that it's evil and we have to commit an injustice. We have to act on it freely, um, but we have to do something that is, in fact, gravely immoral. And so with those three conditions... Um, that's what a mortal sin is. And there's nothing that a human being can do to save themselves once they've committed that mortal sin. Aquinas would say in his Summa Theologica that we're essentially in a pit that we ourselves cannot dig ourselves out of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course we know through baptism and the sacrament of reconciliation, which I think we often take for granted as devout Catholics, but that, that effectively gives us the grace to come out of it. But we always have to realize that that's not primarily our work. That's the work of God saving us from that pit with which we cannot save ourselves. Yeah, there's a, before we continue, there's like three different things that keep uh, jumped out at me as you were speaking just now. 
um, and I'm probably going to forget them. But but one thing that I really like to tell people, especially people who have um, ideas about an angry God, that the catechism of the Catholic Church puts hell as a voluntary condition that you sit there, you know, you, you kind of put yourself there. No God is going to cast his children into hell, uh, but you can program yourself to be such a creature that no longer wishes to be in the company of God. And that's that's what hell looks like. And I, I find that's important for, for Catholics to, to say. I love uh, reconciliation. I find it extremely liberating. I, I find it very therapeutic to separate yourself using words from the thing you have done, because the thing you have done is not the thing you are. The thing you are is a beloved child of God. Um, I think there might have been. Oh, and the third thing is, um, I love your analogy of the pit. Uh, you said that's that's Aquinas? Thomas mm -hmm. yeah i i once heard a sermon um where the analogy is like you fell into a well and god's gonna lower the rope and all you have to do is hold on to the rope you, you don't have to climb out of that well you don't have the you know the, the strength of character to climb but if you hold on god will god will pull you out and every time you let go of the rope and fall back into the muck he'll keep lowering it uh and that, that kind of spiritual poverty where you're like i i know i can't do it on my own but with god i i can't yeah, it, it, but I think it's in the face of people who who kind of come to believe that that act of repentance that you're talking about, that cooperation with God's mercy, um, it does exert a lot of effort on our part, uh, a lot of humility to get to that place. And the Lord is impressed with that. Of course, he's, he's all the angels in heaven are are praising uh, God and, and celebrating when that happens. Um, but we have to remember that the grace that's communicated to us through the sacrament is by the passion of, and death of Jesus. And so that's um, an incredible sacrifice on his part. So when we think about the work that was done to save us from that sin, it should put in perspective um, our work as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Confess and just say the truth about what we need healing from. Uh, so I, I think your point about hell is, is, is important too. Um, it is a place where it's un, we're not repentant. Aquinas says that the, there's only one type of repentance that the dam is capable of, and it's basically, I don't like the punishment. Um, mm -hmm. Or as my mother would say to me, uh, you're not sorry, you're just sorry you got caught. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so th there's no regret for actual sin or rejection of God. And so people who are in hell want to be there because they're still chained and clinging to their their malice and sin yeah um how do you talk about truth with non-believers we all live in the world we all live in a secular society and we live among people who strongly disagree with the church about abortion or sexuality pornography all all these things that pollute <clears throat> that pollute and turn us away from god and and the uh dignity of his creatures do you have a, an approach to try to um persuade you know rather than chastise and draw people into our point of view yeah i mean the unbeliever uh is his own or her own unique person so um i don't think there's any kind of cookie cutter way to approach the unbeliever other than just to get to know them and uh on a personal level if you're if you're able to and i think building a relationship of trust is really important so and finding out what 
um, what they value and, and how they're maybe connected with what I, we call the transcendentals, you know, like, are they motivated by the good, the true, the beautiful, the un united or the, that sense of unity. Um, and then maybe once that trust has been established, trying to foster some curiosity with them. Mm -hmm. Curiosity is a really healthy thing in the intellect. It, it allows us to uh, kind of begin to develop that openness that we need to be moved. It's, you know, tr entrusting ourselves to God is a very scary thing when we don't really know God, um, especially if we don't know he's really good. And, um, and so just maybe engaging them in, in that level of openness after some curiosity and exploration, and then challenging them once they get to that open stage to expose themselves to opportunities to encounter the Lord. Um, I think it's very difficult for us. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult for us to come to a sense of the natural law without supernatural grace, without the context of the creator, um, our, our, our heavenly father and, and the Trinity, um, because there's so much fear shrouding us looking at ourselves, honestly, looking at the world we live in and each other and the relationships that we have. You mentioned a couple sins there. You know, like how does a person who's had an abortion or who's encouraged others to do that, how do they look at themselves once they discovered that was the wrong thing to do? But then when you have the Lord who's merciful and kind, um, he He helps bring healing to that. And, and that's a context that really needs to be there for good reason for all of us sinners within the church and from without. So I think, I think it's really important just to develop a personal relationship with the person and try to figure out who they are. If you're not doing that, let's say if you're doing just a vague general um, approach to people through blogging, through um, trying to know your audience that you're targeting, you know, if you're targeting a philosophical kind of group of atheists, for example, um, maybe dedicate yourself to what they're interested in and genuinely demonstrate that you've heard their position as Aquinas would, right? He would write their objections and then reply to them. So I think it, it just depends, but I think part of it just has to be very intentional. Um, and if the relationship is there, I, I think that's a little bit more fruitful. Okay. Um, so there are seven deadly sins. They they have different ranks uh, as far as gravity. Uh, why are these so, what are they? Why are these so bad in particular and which ones are the worst? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's always been some debate which ones are the worst. Um, I think the uh, the way St. Thomas Aquinas approaches it is theoretically or kind of abstractly first or spiritually um, that the, the spiritual sins are worse than the sins of the flesh. But he doesn't say that the concrete actions are necessarily the same degree of gravity. So we're talking about let's let's speak about them kind of universally first and and we can rank them mm -hmm. so pride pride is always the worst in that sense because as it causes all the other sins to exist hmm. so in that sense it, it, it's the worst but then of course you know you can have a small act of pride say um i'm thinking about myself too much in in a certain situation um, and then you put that beside something like uh, masturbation or pornography um, and, and having that thought of self-obsession and then having those actions, obviously one is, is worse than the other. One is venial and one is mortal. 
So that's kind of more practical, like how does the sin concretely manifest itself? Um, and, and in that case, it manifests itself in the sin of the flesh. So Aquinas talks about first the sins generally, and that's, that's his kind of um, strategy is trying to help us understand basically how it terminates in the mind first. And then we can look at how we act on those kinds of sinful dispositions in concrete reality. Um, with pride, the nature of pride is that we are kind of having too much of a lofty sense of ourself. Um, and that can be done in many different ways. <laughs> um, it can be done with, with our mind, with our physique, with our um, attitude uh, towards truth you know, bending the truth to our reality. So pride comes before the fall. It's, it's the deadliest of all the sins. And, and then he sees a causal connection between them. For example, like envy is to look at another person with kind of a jealousy, a type of envy, a desire for what they have. And it, it makes us sad mm -hmm. that they have something that we wish for ourselves. And that can only exist if I put myself at the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. So it's just a natural consequence. And we see it biblically, right? We see Adam and Eve fall into pride. And of course, that will be imbued into their family. And so as a result, we see the Cain and Abel envy with Cain, which then leads to wrath, which leads to murder. And so there's just this kind of linear movement of sin that it just kind of spirals out of control. Um, and it all begins from pride. And so I think if we're looking at the deadly sins and we don't understand pride, we're not going to understand any of the other ones because it's deeply seated in all of them. Yeah. Because you want to be on your own program. You're not really interested in the good of the other creatures of God. Uh, you know, if Cain said, look, well, look how well Abel's doing good for him. Maybe I can learn a thing or two from him. That's, that's the opposite of what he ended up doing. Okay, so en envy, pride, what else we got? And wrath, you said. Wrath and uh, sloth or sloth or acedia sometimes is referred to. Uh, we have greed. We have gluttony. We have lust. Did I miss one? There should be seven there. I think you got seven. Gluttony, lust, sloth, envy, wrath, pride. Is vanity one of them? Is that the same thing as envy? No, it's not one of them. It can be a species of envy, I'm sure, but greed and greed <laughs> and greed and greed, yeah, or avarice, yeah, yeah. So all uh, all of those are so only two of them are sins of the flesh. So sins of the flesh are uh, gluttony and and lust, and then the rest of them are considered spiritual. Not sloth, huh? Not uh, no. No, see, this is the interesting thing is, so the spiritual ones are the ones that are primarily or principally intellectual sins, so they're spiritual sins. So Aquinas describes sloth as an oppressive sadness that, uh, an oppressive sadness at the, the divine good. So anytime we're thinking about the divine good or we're called to pursue it, which is God, we become sad and oppressed and it's, it's um the idea of god depresses us and so uh one good example in scripture of that is king david 
he decides to take a siesta, something I'm well accustomed to here. <laughs> and um, he wakes up and he looks out the window and there's Bathsheba. And so uh, there's this kind of connection here between um, his spiritual sin of taking a rest, which wasn't actually, it's not always bad, but context was he decided to take a nap while his army was out fighting a war. And typically the king should have been with the army. And so he decided to stay at home while everyone else does the, the hard self-sacrificing work that they're supposed to do in that season of their, their kingdom. And he decides to stay at home. And then he lusts after Bathsheba, which then again leads to murder. And so what, what we see um, in these stories is that he was sad at the idea of going to, to battle, going yeah. to, to battle with his army. And he decided to, to forego it. Now, the example Aquinas gives of sloth is uh, going to our day of rest, you know, on Sunday. Isn't that interesting that that actually pursuing rest and avoiding rest actually becomes a form of sloth? And so it's not laziness. It's not the desire to relax the body. It's actually um, a desire to avoid goodness in God. That is so interesting. I had I never heard that before. So a lot of these depend on context. Uh, and your example of David is is perfect in that way. And I, I also Cain and Abel, it's the the book of Genesis is written with such great economy that you kind of have to infer things. Uh, why is one gift not accepted? The other is. And the implication is that uh, Cain was holding back the good stuff, you, you know, and whereas Abel was giving the first fruits of, of his flock and, and so on. But you can, you kind of have to know to look for that. And same thing with David. Oh, great. He took a nap. He's a king. The king needs a nap because he's got important decisions to make. But really, in this case, he already feels bad about himself because he knows deep down he should be out there leading his people. Now that he's done something bad, it's easy for him to do the next bad thing, right? Like, I, I think we do that all the time. If you drink too much, you might uh, end up flirting with the wrong person or get, you know, like one sin leads to another sin. Uh, they work together, don't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and sometimes, you know, Aquinas will, I don't have them completely mem completely memorized, but he'll, he'll describe some of the sins or the sins that can result from these major capital sins as daughters or sisters. And, um, and so there's a sense of relationship that he's ascribing to them, you know, uh, and that that's important for us to see the connection because if we understand how our mind is, is designed and we'll understand how it's meant to be. We'll also understand how it can unravel. And, uh, and that's really what's happening here is the spiritual sins is a type of madness is taking over. Um, and it all has to do with the kind of darkness, a uh, uh, failure to recognize the truth as it, as it is. And uh, it begins with pride. So that also means that there's a way to understand yourself better. There's a, there's a writer, uh, Sister Miriam uh, James, who, who writes about this. And she says, if you have a frequent sin, if there's something that you're frequently finding yourself weak in a certain area, it's a good idea to look with a little more curiosity and with a tenderness too, you know, mercy for yourself. Why am I, why am I repeatedly falling 
in this way, not in a way that you're like, you're beating yourself up, but you're, you know, you're in a therapeutic way, you're gently trying to untangle that, that, that knot in your heart. And I think, you know, again, David rising from his couch might be like that, or there are certain conditions that mitigate our responsibility, uh, patterns of addiction or abuse, uh, or not fully understanding um, what we're doing. How do you, how do you counsel people to sort this out? So, you know, gently, mm -hmm. gently set themselves back on the path. Yeah. I mean, we're very complicated human beings. Um, and I, and I think there can be all sorts of different causes to sins. So I'm not a therapist um, or a psychologist. So I have to be very careful in that, that regard, giving people counsel. But one, one of the things that you, you mentioned, I think is a good question to always ask people is why, why is this something that keeps coming up? What we're, like a lot, a lot of people are struggling with an addiction to pornography in our culture. Uh, so, why do you? Why does some part of you think that that is a good thing? Mm -hmm. A place of rest, a place where your soul is supposed to find repose. Obviously, in, in the confessional, they won't believe that at that moment. But during temptation, it becomes a false sanctuary for them. And and why is that? You know what 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 kind of um wound are you operating out of in that instance and i think um one of the ministries that i've enjoyed participating in uh is is a healing ministry of where we're asking the lord to bring up memories from childhood or from the past or even just bring a word and it's a, it's a bit of a charismatic ministry of prayer where we're discerning um, what is the wound that God wants to heal? Now, there's many ways we can talk about wounds, but I, I think if we're going to stick to a kind of philosophical background, we would say that a wound is an error or it's a falsehood that we've come to believe. It's a falsehood. could be about ourselves. It could be about our God. You know, some people think that God is actually cruel and vindictive. Um, it could be about fatherhood. It could be about motherhood. Uh, it could be the lie of shame, uh, inordinate shame, as St. John Paul II would put it. So it could be a, a lot of different things, but the enemy plants it there. And the very nature of sin and bad habits or vice is that it actually seats us in a lie and causes us to operate out of it regularly. Mm -hmm. So our perception and interpretation of our life, God's love, everything is warped by that lie. So we need to uproot that, renounce it in the name of Jesus. And then replace it with the truth that God wants us to know. And that's a ministry that prayerfully I like to enter into people. You know, it's been times where I've, I've been praying with people and uh, he's given me an image for their lives. And all of a sudden we realized that was a memory they had from childhood with maybe a father. And all of a sudden they realized there's this connection from being shamed as a child that started this pattern of thinking about themselves as unworthy, unlovable, all these kinds of uh, things that inhibit God's grace. And sometimes it's not forgiving other people. So it's complicated is, is what I'm saying, but the Lord knows the heart. He knows how to untie the knot with, uh, of course, the help of Our Lady but we have to expose those wounds to the Lord. And sometimes concretely that needs to be done with a, the help of a therapist. I encourage a very solid Catholic therapist, but also we need to bring those wounds to 
um, the tabernacle, bring them to the Lord, because uh, often he knows exactly where we need to start. That's so wise. Um, and you started by saying you're not a therapist, but of course, in the confessional, you are in persona Christi. So you are acting as the instrument of the great healer uh, of the universe. Um, and do you find that you can be led through the spirit to say the right thing at the right moment in a way that surprises you? Or are you just gently listening and uh, asking good questions? And um, how do you how do you approach are you since you have such a therapeutic and pastoral role in that capacity? How do you how do you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I always ask the Lord when I'm listening to confession, I, I keep my eyes closed and I try to see if the Lord's going to give me a word or an image. I'm always asking the Holy Spirit to counsel. And um, and if I if I don't receive anything, then I just share them what, what my knowledge is, that the Lord loves them, forgives them, and then I try to give them a penance to the best of my ability if the Lord gives me a word, I, I share that word with them. And, um, and so that I'm always open to receiving what the Lord wants to give that other person. Um, but if he doesn't give me something then I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, interrupt his own providence, um, which, which may be, um, involve healing in a, at a different time in their life, um, beyond the sacramental graces that they're going to be receiving. But, but I do think that, um, listening and asking questions prudently in the confessional can also help um and inviting them maybe hey um if this keeps coming up and you want to talk about it more maybe we can come together and pray um and do that outside of the context of the confessional but it's up to them um so it just depends on you know uh what they're open to and what stage of their life they're confessing yeah um but you just try to work with with the person themselves and I, I don't like to, to give advice um, just for the sake of giving advice. Uh, I think harm can be done that way. And do you never get tired of the same you again, this again? Oh, no, no, <laughs> I'm always, I always admire people who are able to, to constantly revisit that wound and bring it back to confession. I think, um, I think it takes courage to do that. And, and the Lord uh, understands their situation and remember, priests have to go to confession, too. Um, we're all like I, I always was admiring Pope Francis when he in front of every camera he possibly could find. He knelt down and went to confession. And um, we're there to represent the Lord's mercy and kindness and his his truth about about you and your sins. And uh, and, and that's what we have to always keep in front of us. So I, I think. What hurts me um, when a person comes to confession quite regularly is if they're struggling with despair, mm. and and that's a common one. Um, and if they're if they're struggling with despair, um, it means usually that they've really put a lot of human effort towards overcoming this sin, and they're they're discouraged and they don't know what else to do. And that's where. Um, Usually it's it's some sort of what we might call as ungodly self-reliance is that they're trying to save themselves outside of the confessional. And um, they need to find a different way to approach God's grace. And it may involve a healing process that they don't want to participate in. 
that that requires a, a lot more vulnerability. Um, I'm thinking of uh, C.S. Lewis, actually. I think it's in The Great Divorce that talks to a, a young man. An angel comes to him and uh, wants to be free from lust. And he brings a fire poker or something. And and the guy re, re, kind of backs away from it yeah. because he doesn't want to be healed that way. And so sometimes the path that God wants our healing on is not always going to be a comfortable one. Uh, but if it, it shows us whether what is it that we really want? Do we want to be healed or do we want uh, to be comfortable? And And I think that sometimes it's the challenge in the healing process. The healing process sometimes means that we're going to be cut open and the infection is going to be sucked out. And that doesn't sound pleasant at all. Yeah. But that's the only way forward. I think that, that youth struggling with lust in the great divorce, his lust is this red lizard or something like that, that sits on him and sucks on him like a vampire. And uh, eventually when he gets, when he repents of it and, like you said through a self uh like abnegation and spiritual poverty and you know saying i can't do this i but but you can lord that that little dragon creature becomes a horse like a that whatever that sin was was there's a inversion of that in c.s lewis where now it's a strength um which i which i found very interesting and in that whole great divorce which is a wonderful book and i recommend it to everyone a lot of those people they just cling to their sins right he's one of the few who who has that conversion of spirit and a, a similar thing happens in um voyage of the dawn treader where eustace is transformed into this dragon and aslan carves off the dragon skin with his claws and carves it and carves it and carves it, it takes all many many layers many layers many layers until eustace is is uh is healed so um can people hear that you know spiritual poverty uh does is that do we have the language for that in our society because I, I completely agree with all these people trying to fix themselves and self-help and all that. That's not the Christian way. Yeah, I, I think uh, spiritual poverty is, um, it's an important uh, virtue uh, to develop that humility, recognizing that with without God, we're nothing, we're dust, and, and that we need more God. Like one thing that Aquinas says about poverty is that a a person who's who considers themselves poor may not necessarily be poor. Um, so when he's talking about money, for example, so the greedy consider themselves poor, even though they may have mansions. Um, they may say, "I need more. I need more." And so a poverty of spirit is saying, "I need more of God," and you can never need less of Him. And so spiritual poverty should be the most grounding automatic attitude of every christian is that we need god more we haven't attained heaven we haven't um obtained god yet uh in that perfect communion with him and so we always need more of him we never have a sufficient amount of grace um what i mean by that is we never have um the type of communion that will totally bring us happiness until we're, we arrive at home at our we're at rest in God in heaven. And so that that type of poverty that we have where we begging the Lord, but in a spirit of trust, in, in the spirit of trusting in God's generosity. And it's not something that we're going to earn, but it's something that we need. 
and we want God to give it to us. That type of faith is what the church uh, and every member needs uh, in order for us to receive those graces. And it's interesting because Aquinas seems to say that our prayer and our fasting and our you know constant petition is what's actually making us worthy to receive that grace. And by by worthiness here, he means having a worthy disposition to have it planted in good soil. And so God wants us to beg him for these graces so that we will really treasure them when we receive them. And they won't just be choked by the cares of the world or picked up by the birds. And so this is why we have saints like St. Benedict throws himself into a cold river. St. Francis of Assisi throws himself into a rose bush. These are people that were very dedicated and serious about receiving the word of God, receiving the graces that he bestowed upon them to overcome sin. Um, and, and sometimes they were very zealous about how they went about pursuing it. Uh, but I see that with a lot of men, you know, entering into programs like Exodus 90 and, and so other kind of mortifications that many other Catholics will scoff at and make fun of. Um, and yet here are, are men that are willing to sacrifice their comforts to pursue godliness. And I think that's that's a good thing that we need to get behind. Yeah, oh, that's such a good point. Um, and I think, you know, the first step of any recovery program is I am powerless against my addiction, but God can convert me, right? Um, and the rose bush and the uh, icy river or the Exodus 90 guys who are taking cold showers. Um, I noticed that when we pray the rosary on uh, Fridays and Tuesdays, the the flagellation, the scourging at the pillar, the fruit of that one is purity. So there's something about the physical uh, deprivation or somehow like you, you can through it's, I don't understand the mechanism that you're describing, but I perceive, perceive that is there in, in your chapter on error. Uh, the first one, I think you wrote, you said, take a dive out of a three-storied, three-storied tower. Do you understand? Can you explain that? What is the mechanism that's that that is at work here in all these cases if it's even the same thing okay so i i listed three kind of erroneous places that we can start and they really have to do with um where we see ourselves where we see ourselves so the reason why i use the image of gravity kind of falling is because we're trying to get closer to reality we're trying to get closer to um not this kind of lofty prideful thinking about ourselves in the first place that i said we need to fall from our the angelic uh the angelic heights so when we're falling from from a place where we see ourselves as angels we tend to perceive ourselves as being these pure creatures and, and it's something that i i think i was really taken in by Christopher West's Theology of the Body. He, he really mm -hmm. talks about how, as human beings, we are a composition of animal and angel. We're, we're kind of like half of both. And part of that means coming to terms with the fact that we're complicated. Uh, as human beings, we're not simple. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed in some people's spiritual life is that 
anytime they make a mistake, they'll automatically, without discernment, they'll automatically accuse themselves of pride. And I think that that's a mistake. Um, human beings make mistakes. We, we make errors. And that's just part of our human complexity. Aquinas actually says that we are the least intelligent, intelligent beings. So he's comparing himself to angels, angels who are pure intellects, not limited by matter, um, but they're just able to know things immediately and perfectly. Whereas we have to go through kind of sense, um, we have to go through inner senses, and then we have to reason about it, make judgments and so on. And so we have to kind of be compassionate and kind to ourselves about what it really means uh, to be human. And it means that we're going to make mistakes. And I think that's the first thing that we, we need to do. And I think it, it comes in handy when we reflect on our humanity as well, because it, it means that our desires that are, let's say, animal are not to be repressed. They're not to be things that we look at as evil, but that we rightly order them to our intellect. And that's, again, another form of complexity is, is that um, angels only have an intellectual appetite, but we have a sensible appetite as well. And so there's, there's a lot of things uh, moving in different directions. And part of the hardest work that we have to do is develop virtue where everything finally lines up in the right order. And so it's very difficult for a human person to be saved in, in this context because there's a lot of moving parts. And we have to come to terms with that, that we are not angels. Um, and I think part of that too is that you know, we're living in a world today where everyone treats their opinion as if it's it's infallible. Um, you know, my truth is, is a phrase that we hear quite a bit on the lips of people and it's it's presented in such a way that there's no opportunity for dialogue for science uh whether it be the science of philosophy the divine science of sacred scripture um the sciences themselves to test it and to hold it accountable to something and so it's it's almost as if we we see ourselves as the final arbiter of truth and then we call it we, we put our own name on it and uh and that's not necessarily treating ourselves as angels, but maybe more uh, like fallen ones. Hmm. And the second um, terrace that we need to jump off of and, and head towards the truth is this idea um, that we're immaculate, that, um, that we have this kind of innocence in us. And, and it's, <laughs> I mean, the most common way that I see that expressed today is when dealing with our own emotions. So I, I kind of talk about the Immaculate Heart. Um, Mary can stay on this terrace because she definitely has that. But, but we can't because we have a fallen disposition. And so what we think or desire as good may not, in fact, be that. And therefore, we have to recognize that there's an enemy within ourselves. Um, you know, just a, a parent will get this, a parent who's raising a child who wants to eat more candy than they should. They know that that's an irrational affection. A, an enabling parent, maybe not, but, but a parent who genuinely wants to care for their child. And so there, there's that kind of sense that when we, when we look at ourselves and, and our affections and our desires, 
we have to ask ourselves, do they line up to the way that we've been designed according to natural reason, as well as according to the light of the gospel. And um, again, I think that this is another instance where we see that whole emphasis on, on my truth, isn't it? Um, especially when it comes to sexual relativism today. But I think it applies to, to everything. It doesn't just apply to human sexuality. It can, it can apply to things like in the liturgy, for instance. Well, I prefer this when there's a, a genuine option. You know, um, and, and so we have to rein that in and just say, well, wait a minute, like, is my heart kind of being led by the truth or is it unraveling in front of me according to what it's supposed to be? And so I, I think um, we have to really uh, recognize that the, the heart can be wretched and it needs to be saved. It needs to be reordered. And, and that's the important place of virtue. And, and I think that um, there's that, that practical goodness that we're trying to approach here in our life. And what I mean by that is that um, in order to change our hearts, we, we actually have to do something. We have to behave in a different way. And so if we're going to fall from this terrace, it means that we actually have to invest our life in, in good habits and uh and to be able to build that up yeah um the last terrace is is kind of this idea that I, i'm blameless that it as scripture would say if if we say we have no sin we've deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us and, and so i think where we falter here is ultimately where our rationalization gets the best of us so the first two, you know, are dealing with perhaps areas of our life that aren't necessarily sins. They're usually a combination of the two, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but we, we have these desires that are fallen. That's not necessarily something we've chosen. You know, uh, they're, they're unbridled by reason as they were designed to be. The soul was, was meant to be the captain of our ship, but the flesh often pushes the captain off, off, the, <laughs> off the ship. Yeah. And so, uh, that that's normal. Our intellect is confused about who we are. Um, but, but where, and, and this is maybe the hardest place to jump from is where sin actually enters in. And, and this is where we make decisions about what we're going to believe. You know, we're going to turn off, um, this Bible passage. I'm not going to listen to anymore because it's making me uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> or I I'm going to not, not, I'm going to resist reflecting more deeply on the goodness of God because it's, it's actually asking me to change. And so all of a sudden um, we control uh, what goes into our mind. We, we choose to remain ignorant. We deflect our thoughts in a certain way. And, uh, and this terrorist really, and ultimately in order for us to, to find freedom from it, um, we need to completely surrender to whatever the truth is. And I think that that can't really be done without faith. Mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of end this reflection by saying that we're getting closer to God here, getting closer to reality. God's sympathetic and he realizes that we need to be introduced to the truth, um, but it involves our free response. So what we need to do is look at him as we're falling, that we're actually not falling towards our destruction but we're falling towards him 
who's going to catch us. We're falling towards a loving God and we're going to be united to him. And so here, I think what really needs to be roused up in our own hearts and our minds is that we're moving towards goodness. We're moving towards the goodness of his truth, which means that we have to let go of, of whatever falsehoods, uh, counterfeits to that truth we have. And I think God knows that's probably one of the hardest things to do, but it can be done uh, with his grace. That's really helpful. Uh, so those are those are the mortal sins. That's how we are get all tied up in our own preference of our own will rather than uh, doing things on God's terms where we will actually find peace and rest and freedom and joy. What about the venial sins? What's up? What's up with those? And uh, say a bit about that. Yeah, so as I mentioned, Aquinas reflects on venial sins as a sin against the path. So we're still on the path towards heaven, but um, we're kind of like beginning to trail off of it a little bit. And the way that Aquinas understands sins, it's in terms of his understanding of principles. So principles are, are things that govern our behavior. And so if in my mind I begin act, uh, changing the truth, it's going to have effects unravel before it. So the nature of venial sin is it's not some independent act that has no other effect on the rest of our behavior. It's actually like a little seed that's going to turn into something such as mortal sin. It's, it's, its nature is to grow. And, it, and, and so that's the truth about principles. If we make a compromise, one little compromise about this principle in ourselves, that is enough to cause our whole self to unravel over time. It's like a little pinhole in a dam and so on. And so we need to be zealous about removing venial sins from us. Again, we're fallen, so it's very difficult. But if we kind of compromise or we have this idea that, oh, it's not a big deal, I'll just get forgiven, uh, that means that we are not repenting of that venial sin, and therefore it is going to continue to grow because we're not uprooting it. And, uh, and it will lead to a lack of interior freedom, uh, which will lead to an enslavement and vice, which will then, of course, lead us to become stupider uh, or less wise um, in terms of the good and actually invert the order of everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you talk to anyone who takes care of tanks or who take, takes care of boats, you know, a little bit of rust is a very dangerous thing. Uh, it's like a cancer that eats away at it and it may not right now be a big hole that's taking in water, but that's its nature is it's going to lead to that if you don't deal with it and address it. So when we go to the Eucharist, when we go to mass, when we celebrate pretty much any sacrament that we receive, we receive the absolution of those sins. But, but in order to fully cooperate with that grace to allow it to be fruitful, we actually have to be detached from that sin and and repent of it and and i think sometimes we just have this very almost legalistic or um automatic kind of interpretation of how our sin is dealt with that we forget the relational dimension of it right and we forget that we know i i need to genuinely say like i don't want this in me because mm -hmm. it offends the lord it, it's causing me to sink um, and not stand on the water with him. And, and that's where I think we need to 
have a genuine look at those things. And, and often, you know, when I'm dealing with people who are struggling with addictions, for example, they're very aware of when they fell into a mortal sin, but they're very unaware of all the little tiny sins that led them towards that. And, and that's the area that right now, if they have an addiction, that's the area they have control over. And so that's what they have to address. And so I think we should take venial sin pretty seriously as an extension of taking mortal sin seriously. That's such a good point. When we talk about neurology and how habits are formed and how pathways are shaped in the brain, uh, we can train ourselves for good, but we can also train ourselves for ill. <laughs> uh, and you, I really like what you said about comfort because people do not like discomfort. N nobody ever has liked discomfort, but I think we live in a time when we especially dislike discomfort. So the fact that we diagnose a problem the, for for somebody you know who's following the catholic teachings that's a good thing because now you know where you can get closer to god and how you can make repairs and where you can scrub off the rust from the from the hole but uh to, anything else that we should say that i uh, forgot to ask one yeah. thing i was thinking about saying was you know there's some criticism towards pope francis amongst traditional traditional catholics when he was talking about taking the uh, spiritual sins more seriously than the sins of the flesh and people are quoting fatima and talking about that um, they're both right uh, so aquinas's position is that we have to take the spiritual sins very seriously they are technically when we're talking about them in a universal sense they are worse than the sins of the flesh and and in fact aquinas ranks them in that order but none of that actually was a criticism uh, of fatima and what she's talked about when uh, talking about the sins of the flesh because those are concrete instances that many people are struggling with and they're still deadly sins leading people to hell. And, and so we do have to take them all very seriously. But it, as Catholics, we have to make the distinction between uh, studying the sins in a general context versus the particular manifestations of those sins. So I just thought I would offer that because I think sometimes uh, people unfairly uh, critique our, our Holy Father um, when he's making a good point. Thank you so much, Father Chris, for talking with me about the book you're working on and for this lovely, lovely discussion that I hope was uh, certainly useful to me. I hope it was useful to our many listeners. Uh, would you like to say a blessing? At yeah, I would love to. Thanks again, yeah. Chris. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon all our listeners right now. Grant us uh, the gift of always keeping our eyes fixed on you and to be pursuing your truth above our own interpretation, to be grounded in the virtue of humility, and to be set free uh, with a spirit of joy and, and happiness and being united to you. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. Chris Odinitz and Father Chris Pietraszko recorded this conversation, episode 66, on Monday, August 7, 2023. The feast day of St. Cayetan, a Venetian saint who founded the Theatines in Rome in the 16th century, an order which included among its companions the future Pope Paul IV. St. Cayetan was there in 1527 during the sack of Rome and suffered torture during that terrible event. He later founded the Bank of Naples, Il Banco di Napoli, one of the oldest banks in the world, to help the poor.
Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, and their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a window at Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Let me know. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing.